Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. So we are week four in this message series on um, walking in forgiveness. And, and really what this is, is this, it's not meant to be some catchy sermon series. It, really, it's about uh, asking the Word of God to speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. How is it that as a Christian, we are supposed to walk in forgiveness? That's what this message series is about. How are we supposed to do the thing that we're told that we have to do in the Word of God? What is the motivation behind that? So we're four weeks into this. We've covered a couple different subjects just to catch you up if this is your first week here. Um, we're studying what the Bible has to say about walking in forgiveness, and we've learned that um, it is a command. Forgiving people is a command. And it also leads to reconciliation, that it's not just a settling of accounts. It's actually a restoring of a relationship. That's an important part. We've also learned that this is something that Christ taught us how to do uh, while he was hanging on the cross at Calvary. This uh, this is something um, that we, it's not like we don't have a blueprint for how we're supposed to do it. We can watch how Christ did it. Um, We also have learned uh, that uh, in every situation, it's not just us that needs to forgive somebody else. Sometimes we're the ones who are the offenders and we need to ask for forgiveness. And then last week we learned the importance of the motivation behind all of this forgiveness. Yes, we're commanded to forgive, but there's also a motivation behind it. There's something that should stir us and and draw us, make us want to walk in forgiveness, and that is the value of human life. The idea that, um, and Paul tells us this, or Peter tells us this, uh, we were reading 1 Peter last week, this Christ died so that he could bring us back to God. That's, That's why Jesus made the sacrifice, so he could bring us back to God. So what that tells us is that God values people and relationships above all other things. Now that is contrary to our value structure. We value lots of other things other than people and relationships. We value what people can do for us. We value what people can give to us. But very rarely do we walk in a posture where we value people for who they are. The fact that I have a relationship with this person and this person is enough, regardless of whatever they can do or whoever they are, this person is enough, is an ab- it's, an, uh, it's a concept that's It's counter to everything that the world teaches you should be a value system for you. We shouldn't value people, we should value resources. And sometimes people are resources. But in the kingdom of God, we're taught that people are the most precious thing. And that's one of the reasons why we should seek to walk in forgiveness. Because what it does is it changes our value system to align with heaven. Walking in forgiveness is not just about getting forgiveness. It's about changing your entire attitude of what you think is most valuable. It's saying people are more valuable than my opinion, than me being right, than me making my point. Having a relationship with this person is far more valuable than me making sure this person understands my point of view. You understand? That's tough. I, I get it. It's not, nothing in here is easy, uh, but all of it um, is, um, it's worth chasing. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. 
Okay, so today what I want to do is I want to examine what the Bible has to say about the concept of forgiving yourself. Okay, so we've walked through um, how do you forgive other people? We've talked about this idea of what do you do when you are the offender? How do you ask for forgiveness? And today I want to talk about this idea of forgiving yourself. So I'm seeing a lot of smiles, like you're very excited about this. Okay. Okay, finally, now I can start getting through some of my issues. Well, I have good news and bad news. The good news is uh, the Bible has some things to say about those feelings that you're struggling with. The bad news is um, the Bible doesn't actually say anything about forgiving yourself. That's not actually a thing in the Word of God. There's, no, there's, not, there's not a biblical perspective on you just forgiving yourself. And I, I think the reason why that is, and this is, this is just my opinion, but I think the reason why it is is because of what we talked about last week. Forgiveness requires an offender and an offendee. It requires somebody doing an offense and it requires somebody receiving the offense. And the whole purpose of forgiveness is so that those two parties, the offender and the offendee, can finally come back into relationship with one another because the most valuable thing in the world is relationships. It's reestablishing that connection with people. That's the most valuable thing to God. The problem is that you can't simultaneously offend yourself and also receive offense from yourself. If we're using the biblical definition of forgiveness and how things um, work, there's no offender, offendee if it's the same person. I think the best illustration would be um, trying to imagine how you could take yourself to court. How, how do you stand before the judge and plead a case that you have done something against yourself and therefore you should receive some compensation or settlement for yourself? How do, how do you pay yourself? How do you reconcile yourself? So I don't know that there is a concept in the Word of God for this idea of forgiving yourself. I think that this is kind of more of a, um, a, a, a new modern take on, on how you're supposed to reconcile some issues inside your life. So the thing that I want to bring across is simultaneously, there's not this concept of forgiving yourself because forgiveness biblically has to do with two parties, but there is definitely something going on in the human heart we have to address. And I think it all covers, it comes under this umbrella of forgiveness. The thing that we need to reconcile is how is it that, or, or what is it, what is that thing that you see when you talk to somebody who's maybe like in their 50s or something, and they feel like their best years are behind them, and there's no hope ahead of them? What is, what is that feeling? Or, or what is the feeling that you get when you talk to a new believer? And maybe they're in their like mid-30s, and they say, or they, they vocalize um, attitudes like, I, I feel like most of my life, I just wasted it chasing like my passions, and, and now I feel behind in my maturity. I need, I, I, and this is a thing that just kind of constantly like bombards me, and so I need to forgive myself. Well, well that's not necessarily what's going on. I, I see it personally when I talk to like fathers who struggle with things like controlling their temper or their tongue. I also see it in mothers when they struggle with this concept of not feeling good enough, and so they self-condemn 
Because when they look online at what other mothers are publishing about what motherhood should look like on Instagram or whatever, they feel, I'm not doing enough. I'm not good enough. And therefore, I need to do more. And those feelings of not being good enough, what are those? Those are the things that I think that we should wrestle with today. So while I don't think that falls under the category of in order to fix it, you need to forgive yourself, these are issues that need to be addressed. So what is going on? If this is not a forgiveness issue, what is it? Well, things like I just mentioned and many other things that may have just come to your mind while I was speaking, I think fall underneath, not forgiveness, but this issue that the Bible would call grief. And you're thinking like, grief? That seems odd. Well, in the Word of God, grief is considered like a deep sorrow over something. So what you're expressing when you say, I feel like I should be farther along and those feelings are keeping me held back, what you're expressing is a deep sorrow or a regret or a grief over something. And the reconciliation is not just forgive yourself and move on. The issue is something different biblically. Paul talks about this grief in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're going to kick it off in verse 5. We're going to read through verse 10. And what he does is he tells us that in the world there are two main types of grief that come into the lives of people. There is godly grief and there is worldly grief. And the issue that we are struggling with is not going to be reconciled by taking these principles of how do you forgive that we've talked about the last couple of weeks and applying them to situations. There is going to require something different that you do when grief starts taking a hold of your heart, when regret, when sadness, when deep sorrow starts coming against you, what do you do? So let's, let's see what Paul has to say. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. So Paul was talking about his joy that he had in writing this letter to the church in Corinth and the time that he came and visited them. Verse 5, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. So when Paul first came to this church, he was in a very, very difficult situation. He was struggling with stuff on the inside, fighting with people on the outside and dealing with personal fear on the inside. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by his comfort with which he has comforted by you as he told us of your long, longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. Now, I'm reading that section because we're going to come back to why that's important. He gives us, Paul is actually giving us some tools on how to reconcile this grief, but he gives us some details as he move from eight down to 10. So let's read those. For even I made you grieve with my letter. I do not regret it, though I did regret it. What? That doesn't make any sense, Paul. What he's saying is, I don't regret it now, because I see what happened when I wrote it. But when I did write it, I did have some feelings of regret, because I knew I was really harsh on you guys. For I see that later, 
excuse me, so I see that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice. So right now I'm rejoicing because of what that grieving led to. Not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Now we're getting somewhere. Godly grief produces a repentance, and it leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief only produces death. So let me give you a context for what Paul is doing. He planted a church in Corinth, and when he planted this church, this church was just completely wild. They brought their own personal traditions and the way they used to worship with them into this church. And Paul had quite a time trying to get them to understand a lot of the issues that are no longer able to come into the church and be part of the worship service and also part of your lives. And so after he planted this church and spent a a number of years with them, he left and went to go plant other churches and then heard news about what was going on in Corinth and he wrote them a letter. And that's 1 Corinthians. We studied that last year. There's a message series on it if you want to go back and listen to it. But he wrote the church a letter and essentially what he did is he just let them have it. He said, here's an issue you have. Here's an issue that you have. Here's how you're treating sin. You're acting in such a way that sin's not a big deal. This needs to be dealt with. This is wrong. This This is good, but you need to fix these things. And when he wrote the letter, we're told by his own um, words that he felt incredibly grieved about being harsh on them, but ultimately that letter produced a conviction inside of them that then produced a change. So therefore, he's no longer grieved because he, he knows what the letter did inside of it. So he wrote 1 Corinthians, he sent this off, they took the letter, and what Paul tells us they did with the letter was they allowed his words to produce a godly grief inside of them over their sin, they repented, and they turned from their sin, and they started producing fruit. So the point of Paul writing to see heart change actually worked. But in that letter and in this writing, he gives us a contrast of what godly grief and worldly grief looks like. And I think this will be very helpful to help you reconcile those feelings that you've been having on the inside of you. How do you deal with this grief or this sorrow you're struggling with? How do you get over these feelings of not being good enough? Well, what Paul tells us is the first kind of grief is godly grief. And godly grief is a sorrow that convicts people and also propels you towards repentance. That's important. Because when the sorrow comes on, if it's from the Lord, if it's godly sorrow, then what it does is it produces inside of you a desire to want to do something about it, to repent. It convicts you. You need to change. This is not right. This sorrow is causing me to assess this specific thing in my life, and it needs to change, so I'm going to bring it to the Lord, and I'm going to repent of it, and it's going to free me, and now I can live without regret. I don't have to come back and visit this thing because my king, Jesus, has already settled the matter. As a judge, he's already smacked his gavel and he said, you are declared not guilty over this. So I don't have to come back and constantly ask him, hey, am I still guilty over this? Are we still good? Is everything okay? No, it's settled. You don't have to come back and check in like a probation officer to see if everything that was already settled is settled still. Do you follow? That's what godly grief does. It drives you to the cross to remind you that the matter is settled. 
And if it is something that has been stirred in your flesh and it needs to be dealt with again, you've come back and revisited this addiction, then, then the, you don't live in condemnation over it. You bring it to the cross and say, Lord, um, this, <laughs> I am now walking out a step with the gospel. I, what I know you've saved me from, I've gone back to, so I'm turning my back on that. I'm turning back to you. I repent, and I want to leave all of that regret and guilt gone, and I want to live as a free person. So these are the steps to godly grief. First, the Holy Spirit convicts you. We know that the Holy Spirit convicts because Jesus tells us that in John 16, 8, that the Holy Spirit's job is to convict the world of sin. That's what he does, which is a good reminder for you because many of you think that your job is to convict people of sin. You think that the whole reason why you have Facebook is to convict people of sin. That's not your job. And while you may be okay at it, you're not as good as the Holy Spirit, and it's not on your resume. It's not your job description. This is not in your category. This is not your wheelhouse. You are not the great convictor of sin. The Holy Spirit is, according to the Bible. So the Holy Spirit comes in, and He convicts us of sin, and the result is godly grief, a sorrow. So, an action takes place and a reaction happens. The action is God convicts of sin through either the teaching of the Word or through you studying the Word of God or through a conversation that's led by the Holy Spirit and somebody says something in your life and you're like, mm, that just really got me. He just, mm. What he said, it, it just, ah, I gotta do something about this. That conviction produces some kind of sorrow in here, and this, this grief takes a hold of you, and it's godly grief, and it drives you to needing to do something about this. I've gotta fix this, I've gotta reconcile this, and the only way to do it is to bring it to Jesus and let him settle it. What you don't do is you, you don't go back and you start trying to make lifestyle changes so that you don't go back and do that thing again, because Jesus is clear. The reason why you're sinning is because deep in here, that man that's supposed to be dead, you're letting him come back to life by feeding the flesh. You're constantly feeding him with the, the temptations of the world. You're stockpiling things of the flesh so that you're feeding this dead old person and trying to bring him back to life. And that's out of step with the gospel. That's out of step with the way we're supposed to be living and walking. So what we're supposed to be doing is keeping that old person dead and living this brand new life and feeding that life, not the old life. So when we're convicted of sin, this deep sorrow comes on, we come to the cross, we confess, we repent, and the result is, praise God, no more regret. Which is interesting, because that's not how most of us live. Most of us live this attitude of bringing our package or our box to the Lord and laying it down and saying, okay, this is my stuff, I don't want it anymore. Thank you for what you've done for me. And I'm going to go back in my life and then spending the next part of your life going through your day thinking about the things that you did in the past and how those things are now still influencing your decision making today. You're, you're not actively living as a free person. You're still living as a slave. Yeah, you took the stuff and you set it down, but you left some little trinket in your pocket. That trinket that you didn't leave in the box is the memory of the thing and you're walking around and it's causing this sorrow that doesn't lead to repentance. It's causing sorrow that leads to death, worldly grief. And this is the contrast that Paul gives us. 
But before we go into the worldly grief, I'd give you some, a couple um, indications from the Word of God of what godly grief looks like. When the Holy Spirit comes in to convict you of sin, He doesn't, abs- he doesn't give you these abstract accusations about what you've done. The Holy Spirit doesn't come in and say, you're really failing as a mother. That's not what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes in with very specific conviction, because the goal is change. Holy Spirit comes in and says, hey, just a minute ago when you lost your temper on your kid, you're going to teach them that that's a proper way of speaking to people when you're angry. You need to repent of that. Do you see the difference? See the difference between accusations that are abstract, you're just really failing, you're not doing great, and these specific convictions of that thing needs your attention. The Holy Spirit, if you look through the Word of God, there's tons of examples. Uh, um, early in the book of Acts, there's a situation where um, there's these two people, Ananias and Sapphira. They, they, can, they, they sell a piece of land, and they come to the early church, and they say, we're going to donate all of the proceeds to the church so that everyone can see how awesome we are and how great we are for selling all of our property and giving all the proceeds to the church. The thing is, what they said was all was not all. They kept a little for themselves. When he came up and confessed to the apostles, this is what it is. He lied, and the apostles tried to get him to say, hey, just to clarify, this specific amount that you're saying, is this the amount? It's funny, in Acts it says, um, you said that you sold it for such and such. Uh, is this, uh, did you actually sell it for such and such? And we, we, it was funny, me and my family were reading through Acts together, and the question that came up after reading was, well, how do you think that Luke, who wrote Acts, um, recorded it as such and such? Because it says it like six times in that, because then his wife comes in, and they're like, the apostles are like, hey, uh, you, you say, did you sold this for such and such? Was it actually such and such? And they're like, yeah, it was definitely such and such. There's a lot of such and such. Well, when Luke is recounting the story, he's going and asking these personal witnesses, hey, is this what happened? Is this what happened? I can imagine that they had a hard time deciphering what was the actual amount. Like, was it $3,152? Was it $3,153? And Luke's like, it doesn't matter. I'll just write such and such. The point of that story, (laughs) that's funny, the point of that story is to remind us that when the Holy Spirit does do the convicting, it's, 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 it's very specific. The apostles didn't look at Ananias and say, Ananias, you have, a, you have a long history of not telling the truth. The Lord's not pleased with your, your, you never telling the truth. You always lying. He says, is this the specific amount that you say is all you got for selling your property? Yes, that is the specific amount. Judgment. He was killed. He died. And his wife comes in and does the exact same thing. And then the young men of the church, early church youth group, they go, their responsibility was to come up and take the dead body and go bury it out back. <clears throat> Things have progressed a lot in youth ministry. <laughs> but the point I'm trying to make is that when the Holy Spirit does do the convicting, it's very specific. And that should give us an indication of how we know where the grief is coming from. This specific, uh, specific conviction produces a specific sorrow in us. Now, when the enemy comes in to condemn us, it's opposite. It's very abstract. There's very little details. This, this idea, and so now we're moving out of godly grief and this concept of um, 
what, what the Holy Spirit does, and we're moving into this concept of worldly grief. World, if, if godly grief produces repentance and conviction, worldly grief is a sorrow that condemns you and propels you towards death. That's what worldly grief is. Godly grief from God on high propels you to change and a release of regret and a new life and freedom. And worldly grief, all it does is it shackles you more and it leads you towards death. Worldly grief comes from the enemy, it accuses you and it condemns you, and the result is death. So the action when it comes to worldly grief is condemnation accusations. You're always like this. You're never like this. You never do this. You always, there's no specifics to it. It's all abstract. That's the action that the enemy takes. The reaction is worldly grief. That's the emotion that we feel. And it propels us into more depression and sadness and sorrow. And the Bible calls death. And in this context, death is the end of abundant life and relationships. It isolates you. It pulls you away from people. Now this difference, how, how do we tell the difference between godly grief and worldly grief? It has to do with one, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, the, spe- the specificity that the Holy Spirit uses to bring about the sorrow. But when it comes to the enemy, how do we identify those? The enemy is uh, always into condemning and using abstract no, and, and, and the absence of details, condemnation and accusation. Um, and what it does is it produces this feeling of sorrow and it leads to this idea of death. And death um, looks like the absence of relationships, but it also, um, in many circumstances, looks like you trying to overcompensate for the thing that you were convicted of and avoiding the Lord. And that's kind of the end. That's how do you know what the difference is? Because if both of these are griefs, if both of these are sorrows, if both of them are feelings that we feel, how do we know the difference between the Holy Spirit and the enemy? Where does it come from? How do we tell the difference? The, the, how do you tell the difference is where you end up? Where does the grief lead you? Does the sorrow that has come upon you lead you towards repentance and more of the Lord? Does it lead you to Jesus? Or does it lead you to more of yourself, more of your pity, more of, your, uh, of, of, of self-condemnation? Does it lead you away from the Lord? That's how you tell the difference between the grief that comes upon you. The sorrow that overtakes you is from the Lord if it leads you to the Lord. It's from the enemy if it leads you away from the Lord. That's as simple as it gets. So if we go back to what we talked about earlier, this feeling that a lot of us are struggling with, just a reminder to settle these issues of grief, the answer is not applying the principles of forgiveness that we've talked about, of going to yourself and just saying, hey, I'm letting you off the hook. That's not gonna help you in this situation. When the enemy comes at you and says, you're not a good enough father. You're never going to be a good enough mother. You're never going to amount to anything. Your job is never going to change. You're always going to be in this dead end job because you made the mistake earlier in your life to not go to college or not do this or not listen to your father or not do these things. And now you're going to pay. The, the way that you get over those feelings is not just saying, all right, well, I just forgive myself because those are issues of grief and guilt and, and they will lead to either more grief and guilt or they will either lead to regret There's no hope, there's no outside of that. But the good news is the Holy Spirit doesn't do that. The Holy Spirit doesn't send condemnation, he sends conviction. 
And so if many of you in this room today are suffering from this idea of not being good enough or wrestling with grief, what you need to do is discern the origin of it. This thing you're wrestling with right now, you need to decide where is it from. If it's from the Lord, then I've got a very clear path of what I need to do next. But if it's from the enemy, there's something else I need to do. I'll cover that in just a second. Where is the grief coming from? Most of you walked in with some today. This idea that, man, I'm overtaken with these feelings of like, man, I should know more of this. I hope my kids don't ask me anything about the Bible because I don't know anything about it. And I feel horrible about that. Or I grew up with, with my family. My grandfather's a pastor. And I live most of my life feeling guilt that I'm not a better Christian. I mean, are these feelings you've wrestled with? The idea is that it doesn't matter what you do, it isn't good enough. There's a difference between the Holy Spirit convicting you of, look, there's some issues in your life you need to change. You absolutely have to change the way that you speak to your wife when she talks to you about this specific issue. Conviction that leads to repentance and frees you from regret. But this idea that there's this dark cloud covering you and that you made some mistake early in your life and you're just never going to be able to course correct and you're just destined for this sadness that's not from the Lord. That's from the enemy. And the only byproduct, that that's, the only thing that's going to produce is more sadness and death and depression. So if it's from the Lord, you've got to repent. But, but if, it's, if it's that other thing, what do you do? Because here's the issue. Many times when the enemy comes in to condemn you, he uses the truth. He doesn't come in with wild accusations about things that you are not. He comes in with wild accusations that, that, about things that are half true to you. Like I, I've, in my life, I, I've said this before, I've never been drunk. I don't drink alcohol. Part of it is because I've got a long history of people in my family abusing it, and I have a sneaky suspicion that it wouldn't take much for me to become addicted to that thing. So I just don't touch it at all. Plus, could you imagine me drunk? That's a lot. I mean, I'm a lot right now, but. <laughs> the point being is that there are things about me that if the enemy came in and tried to convict me of, I'd be like, <laughs> that's not me. That, that's not me at all. Like that, that condemnation has no effect on me because I'm not, I'm not the kind of person who chooses this addiction over my kids. But there are other things about me that I have suffered with over my life that if the enemy comes in and says, hey, here's a thing that you are, there is a tremendous amount of regret that sits on my shoulders for that. So in those moments where the enemy comes in and tries to condemn you with something that is partially true, what do you do? There's a precedent for this. This is what the enemy did to Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. When the enemy came in to tempt Jesus, he used the word of God to tempt him. Hey, Jesus, how about you throw yourself off the pinnacle of the temple? Because doesn't it say in Psalm 91, the angels will, will, will guard you up and, and the, they'll cover you with their wings and they'll protect you? Well, it does say that, but that's not what it means. So I'm going to use some truth, but I'm going to use it out of context to kind of 
mold to my own personal preference. So the enemy does use some aspect of truth. So when he comes in and he tells you, hey, remember those years where you chose your job over your kids? Feel pretty bad about that, don't you? It doesn't matter that you've already reconciled that with your kids and you've brought it to the cross and you're not guilty about that, but it is something that you did do in the past and the enemy likes to bring it up into your face and, and taunt you with it so that it produces worldly grief and sorrow. Hey, you remember that time where you chose um, your hobby over your children? Remember that? Huh. You should feel pretty bad about that, huh? Well, yeah, I guess I should feel pretty bad about that. No matter, it was already settled. What do you do when the enemy comes in and accuses things that you're guilty of? Well, you do what Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. When he was fighting from without and fear within, he says in verse 6, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. How do you contrast, or how do you uh, combat attacks from the enemy that may or may not have an ounce of truth to it, what do you do when worldly grief sets in? Godly grief drives us repentance. We know what to do, but what do we do with worldly grief? We go to the Word of God, and we remind ourselves about the but God verses. Now, you, you may have heard this before, and this is not new. I just want to remind you of this. But there are numerous verses in the Word of God where there are ideas contrasted, true ideas contrasted with this concept that, yes, while this is simultaneous, while this is true, this but God is also simultaneously true. He did not require this to be untrue before this could be true. You follow? So, but God verses. This idea that while Paul was struggling with fear, God was more faithful than Paul was and comforted him exactly the way he needed to. So what I want to do is I want to leave you with a couple but God verses to whet your appetite so that you can go search for more in the Word of God. And the reason why I'm doing this again is to help you reconcile this idea of grief. What the answer to your problem is not just forgive yourself and move on. You're going to have to wrestle with this. It's not going to be over as soon as the sermon's over. This is going to be a thing you're going to wrestle with for many years to come. But you need tools on how to handle this because if it's from the Lord, it's easy. You repent, you go to the cross, you, it's, it's settled. The judge of the ages has already declared not guilty. You can move on without regret. But if the enemy continues to come in and attack, what do you do? How do you combat the idea that you're not doing enough? You should be doing more for God. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but God gives the growth. I should be doing more. I'm not enough. Well, yeah, that's partly true. In the scope of eternity, your impact is about the grain of sand on a beach, but God chose to use that grain of sand for his purposes. I'm worthless in God's kingdom. I have no talents or gifts, 1 Corinthians 12, 18. But God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. I feel like I'm worthless. I don't have the, as many talents as this other person. Well, that may be true. You may not have as many talents as this other person, but God saw fit to give you the talents that you have, so rest in that. So when the enemy starts slamming you with these worldly griefs, 
this condemnation, this deep sorrow that you're not good enough, you can contrast with, well, God saw fit to give me exactly what I need, and so I can rest in that. How about the issue of you hating your body? I don't like the way I look. God made a mistake in forming me. 1 Corinthians 15, 38. But God gives everything a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. Now he's talking about our resurrected state and the fact that when we resurrect, we will have a different body, but he's giving us the truth that God gave us the exact body that you needed, not somebody else's that you needed, and that you can rest in that. I'm the worst sinner. I've lived most of my life being selfish and just chasing my passions. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. While that may be true that you lived most of your life chasing your passions, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. How about I've messed up, my, I've messed up God's will for my life and my destiny is out there somewhere and I've lost it. Acts 17, 26, but God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined an allotted period and the boundaries of their dwelling place. The time you were born, the family you were born into, and the part of the world you were born into was predetermined by God. You don't get to say that it was a mistake and that your destiny is out there somewhere. Where you are and when you are is exactly what God wanted. Look, God will convict you of sin, but the end goal is always freedom, godly grief. You should learn to love this feeling because it is the sweetest feeling as a disciple. To know that your father loves you enough to discipline you so that change comes about is a sweet feeling but the enemy absolutely will condemn you. He will not stop today. He will ramp it up after this message series and you will struggle with guilt this week from the enemy. I promise your kids will test you. Your coworkers will test you. Your life, your bank account, your season in life, it will absolutely test you. The enemy will come in and will lie to you, and he'll use half-truths to do it. But the point for us to, rem to remember is that the Bible is filled with ways to contradict that. We have to learn how to hate that feeling of condemnation and not grab it like a blanket that makes us feel comfortable. We don't chase down those feelings of self-deprecation like they are identity. We have a new identity, and we leave that stuff alone. We chase the butt gods. We don't give it a home in our heart. We let it go. The point of all of this is to remind you that we are free people. God has forgiven each and every one of you, and you no longer have to live in bondage. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.